These podcasts may contain mature subject matter or language. Listener discretion is advised. I will be doing an interview on the question of when do the social factors surrounding the creative and artistic work become acknowledged or overlooked? And for what reasons might this occur? Hello, this is Patrick Hampton for Yes, That Does Count as Social Theory, the show where I will be talking about a variety of topics, but I will loop social theory back in. Listen to some royalty-free music while the show is about to begin. Dr. Philip Swanson, and can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, my name's Phil, Philip Swanson. I've taught um, in the music department since the creation of the music major, which was 2003. I teach music theory and also run the jazz band and uh, uh, teach some private lessons. Before that time, I spent uh, several decades as a professional musician in orchestras in Boston and Miami and New York and also in jazz. My primary instruments are trombone and piano and I'm also uh, uh, always a composer primarily in the uh, classical tradition but right now I'm teaching at Salem State University. Um, my main question is, when do the social factors surrounding the creator of an artistic work become acknowledged or overlooked? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. Uh, speaking of the social context in which a work of art is created, uh, Certain and certain. I'll speak primarily to music since that's the the area I'm most involved in. But it certainly would apply to literature, uh, the visual arts, or whatever. Um, uh, the certain artists, certain. Uh, well, we're obviously all somewhat influenced by the society in which we live, just by the nature of, if I live in a Western European-based based nation uh, with a Western European musical system, I'm going to be working with certain elements as opposed to, you know, living in um, northern India or something like that. So the, the social and that... And, and if I'm a writer, I'm, I'm in the context of the American English language of the 2000s. So the social fact, that, that provides the entire context in which this work is taking place uh, on the most fundamental level. On a more temporal level, um, certain artists might wish to speak to the f social factors, uh, w the social social conditions 
in which the work is being created. They might wish to speak directly to it, if I might be specific, uh, from a genre of more popular, uh, main, uh, popular, let's say, folk. I even hesitate to categorize it. Take Bob Dylan, who was bigger than any category. Um, he went through a period where he was very much addressing social issues. Think of the masters of war. He's commenting on Vietnam and the nature of war. Uh, hurricane, he's speaking about the jailing of Reuben Carter. And, but he also underwent went a period where he's just writing about personal, um, personal interests, relationships, right? So within any given artist it it can they can be commenting on social issues or they can be commenting on very personal issues and this would also be true in terms of classical music or, or any genre you may pick so i would say um, in certain cases they're very much comment commenting and they're also commenting on different Elements. If you're the Beach Boys, you're talking about how great it is to go surfing. Well, that's part of the social context in which you're doing. But if you're um, uh, uh, Marvin Gaye or someone, you're you're talking more about, or any a lot of other artists, you're talking more about the society and the classes and the difficulties and racial issues and and economic issues. Um, so it can vary. It varies widely. There's a whole, a whole range of degrees of which it's reflecting socially, uh, speaking directly to social issues, or not. But even if someone may not have intended to speak to social issues, social issues may end up becoming part of that work. I agree, absolutely. How, how can you, you can't put yourself in a, uh, you know, uh, isolation. So it's going to influence you even subliminally. Um, and, and, and so that, again, would vary depending on the individual, the nature of the event. Um, and so, yeah, it's how does, how does one uh, yeah, that could be influencing your work without you even realizing it. That's that's a good point. You know, you're speaking to it. You didn't intentionally uh, start it that way, but it it's it it becomes part of it. I agree. Part of what we consider to be art comes from the idea of high culture and low culture, where high culture speaks to the larger, well, the smaller part of the elite society, and low culture speaks to the masses. And the idea is about the high culture speaking to the upper echelon of society and low culture speaking to the larger masses are constantly changing and maybe that has to do with how we view society yeah it's, i think it's 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 an interesting point i i um 
I, I thought of a, a couple examples as you were mentioning that. One, I'll take the composer Aaron Copeland, who lived, I think, from 1900 to 1996. He's considered one of the great first <clears throat> American composers whose m music reflected the nature of the American landscape and society and thought, um, as opposed to just from coming from Western Europe, which most 19th century composers were just trying to sound like Brahms. And Aaron Copeland grew up in Brooklyn. And, and, and in any case, he was writing in the 20s very avant-garde music that would be very much high culture, right? It, it was not for the average person listening. It was abstract. And then in the 30s, he got very intrigued with the American West and with uh, Appalachia, and he started incorporating very common themes, like he wrote a piece called Appalachian Spring, which with the dancer Martha Graham depicted a certain American vignette. And a lot of the high culture people looked at it. You sold out. You're, why are you writing that 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 that, that music? And his voice—he wasn't making some grand artistic statement. He was saying, and he wasn't abandoning his others. He just said, "No, that's just that's that's a voice I'm hearing now. It interests me musically." So. Um, uh, that was an example of an individual who just, you know, if you want to say even more than low, just a more common kind of musical language, right? And so this, and various artists go through different periods. In another sense, you could say the opera is very high culture, and if you go into a rhythm and blues club, that's not high culture, you know? But that's, that's a very arbitrary distinction. Uh, the uh, it's a little over oversimplified, but I love the statement by Duke Ellington where he said, "There's only two kinds of music: good music and bad music." So he's not talking about high or low culture. There's plenty of lousy high culture music. <laughs> so there's plenty more than too much, right? So I would say it has to do with the nature of it as opposed to high and low, but it does exist in society. You get a different crowd at the Metropolitan Opera generally than you do at Frankie's Barbecue Blues Band, you know. But I'm not going to make a value judgment on one or the other. Yeah. One of the central ideas of sociology, and I was told... Like, if I have to ask just one question mm -hmm. as the basis of sociology, it's who's allowed to do what? And I think a lot of this comes into the performing of music and who is allowed to make that high culture art and who is allowed to, or more accurately expected to, make the low culture art. And I feel like this has to do with several factors such as race, gender, ethnicity, and so forth. Yeah, it's a, I wouldn't even almost use the word allowed, but let me speak to that. You know, in, a, in the major symphony orchestras, the makeup, if you go hear the Boston Symphony, there might be one African-American person. Same with Chicago. It's about 1%, right? Um, 
And often if you go to a, a hip hop or rap concert, it's a primarily African-American tradition, although there's big, you know, I know there's a lot of Beastie Boys and all of this, right? It's a, it's a however, um, there's, there's a lot of efforts made to, to um, uh, uh, make uh, classical music more diverse, but inherently, it's a Western European music. It's so this is inescapable. From um, are there extremely talented African American musicians? Yes, there are, but in the, in the environment in which a lot of uh, I'm not even going to say uh, even uh, take it just to be racial. But if, you, if you're in an environment where classical music is not heard, it's not part of your culture, you're not drawn to it. If you grow up in Lexington or something and every, half the, you know, everybody's going to the symphony concerts all the time and you have this amazing orchestra in your school, you're drawn to it, right? So, yeah, that's inevitable. That's um, uh, the, the example... Um, uh, one of the examples I like to use in this context, it might not speak to it, but um, these people go to, do uh, you take Mozart, who wrote opera, okay, you're going to go to the Metropolitan uh, Opera and you're going to hear, uh, you're going to hear Mozart, but he also, he, he, um, he also would go and see the Beggar's Opera. And the Magic Flute, which people are going to pay $500 to go hear, was written for the Beggar's Opera, for the, for the peasant, quote, uh, low peasant folk, right? And he loved that because he, he lived in poverty and squalor also. It's, it's really it's a fascinating, complicated dance, we may say, between quote, high culture and low culture, you know. I think Billy Joel wrote a song, Uptown Girl, <laughs> Downtown Girl. He's kind of speaking to that if you know Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> but we like our artists to look a certain way with either high culture or low culture. And Mozart, in spite of how he was perceived at the time, sort of this low culture, as you were saying, beggar's opera, he eventually became this face of high culture. Correct. Yeah, often geniuses are way ahead of their time, right? Mozart was buried in an unmarked grave. Beethoven lived in absolute squalor. And actually, one of the definitions, one of the common characteristics of genius is they're, they're like 40 years ahead of everybody. So... Uh, <clears throat> there's fascinating accounts in Beethoven's life where Rossini went to visit Beethoven and Beethoven was living in absolute squalor. This is in the 1820s. But Rossini was the most famous composer in Europe and people loved him. He was a good composer. He wrote very catchy melodies. I like Rossini. But he's nowhere near Beethoven. But to his credit, Rossini knew that. And so he was being honored in something. And he went to see Beethoven and uh, just because he wanted to meet him. He knew he was the great genius. Then he went to the, the ball 
you know, with, with all the aristocrats honoring him. And he made a speech to them saying, you know, you should help Beethoven. This is the greatest genius. And they're all like, no, he's, he's an idiot. That's throwing our money away. We don't understand his music. He'll just squad it. So, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, high, high, often what becomes high culture, <laughs> people kind of caught up to it. Yeah, I, I, that's an interesting point, but I would agree. And that's not unusual. No one ever heard, Schubert never heard one of his symphonies. And uh, often artists, and Charlie Parker was ahead in jazz. People didn't get it, you know. It caught on later, but to a smaller context of people too, yeah. This reminds me of how in Michel Foucault's um, Madison Civilization, A History of Insanity in the Age of Reason, he wrote about the idea of madness, and by madness he meant more the idea of something... One studies repressive governments that come in, you know, the Khmer Rouge or uh, ISIS, one of the first things they do is uh, eliminate art, music, art, any form of self-expression because they're trying to impose absolute control over the people and they realize that these, the arts promote individual, individuality, self-expression, and that's what they're trying to, uh, they're trying to, uh, they don't want that. So uh, it's forbidden. Music was forbidden by extremes of the Taliban. No, one of the first things they'll take away, and writing and literature, and that happened in the Soviet Union, and people were sent to the gay gulag. So yes, absolutely. But there are times when art is used as more of a tool to change society in a way people want, such yeah. as how... Sorry, Dad. Such as how Plato wrote in The Republic that art can be used to guide society in a way that we want it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's very powerful. Um, actually, let's go to the realm of physics for a moment. Splitting the atom can be used in incredibly beautiful ways, right? To I don't understand physics, but I get that, right? And open up whole new realms and ways of healing. It also can be used to uh, eliminate the planet, right? <laughs> so inherently, the art can be used for different purposes. That's exactly correct. And it can be used as a tool of propaganda um, to convey certain ideas and get people all worked up because they realize the power of that singing and of music and patriotism. Um, and so it can be misused, but it can also be used in the other way to bring people together. This famous song in the 80s, we are the world, we are, the, they got da 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 came in the late 80s, produced by Quincy Jones with like 30 of the great, greatest singers, and they all agreed to come, Stevie Wonder and Bob Dylan, everybody. So there was a art being created for a kind of universal unity. So it's all in how, yeah, it's all, it's powerful, as, as Plato said. Um, it's all how it's used. 
right? Yeah. But art can be considered just part of human nature and just how we express, such as how Augusto Boll wrote in Theater of the Oppressed on page one, can be considered just part of human nature and just how we express, such as how Augusto Boll wrote in Theater of the Oppressed on page 109 that art is eminent to all men, not just a select few. Art is not sold no more than breathing, thinking, loving. I agree, and that's why it's so powerful. That's exactly it. It is so powerful that it's going to reach everybody. So if you have a tool that can reach anybody, something that vast that's, in, like he said, is inherent in almost all humanity, that's powerful. You can't uh, market that. You know, you can't buy that. That's inherent. And so that's what makes it such a powerful force for either good or evil. That's exactly it on the head. Yeah, it reaches everyone, not just the select few. Everyone. Well, um, what reasons might... What might be the reasons why people could ignore the social factors surrounding the creator of the work of art? Um, perhaps... Um, you mean if you're actually looking at a work of art... Sometimes we just don't give it... Um, well, this happens all the time. You can be... Um, it's, some of it could just be ignorance or a lack of curiosity, you know? And it's like, it's constantly in the class. We'll do something. I said, have you ever thought about who created this or when it was created or why it was created? That's going to bring a lot of more meaning and depth to it. And so... Sometimes it's just, you know, you just do it and you don't think about it. So you're on a more superficial level, like with many things. But if you dig in more deeply, um, you know, there's a good example of that where Wynton Marsalis, the great jazz trumpet player who's head of jazz at Juilliard, he said, you know, when they play a tune in his jazz band, you know, just some standard, he said, we don't just play the thing. He says, there's 10 or 12 different things we look at. Who wrote it? When did they live? What social context was it in? What, what was the first performance? How many people have recorded it? Uh, what are different, you know? So that's, the other one's just skimming, oh, let's play this tune. So yeah, you're kind of ignore. you're missing. It's like the tip of the iceberg, maybe, you know? Like, no, there's a lot more to this. So a lot of times it's just lack of curiosity or maybe you don't even know to look and that's where a good teacher could come in and say, well, dig in here. What's underneath? People might be afraid of what's underneath. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good point. They, they kind of know what's underneath and they don't want to look at it. That's very true. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me. And is there anything else you would like to say? No, I'd just like to say I enjoyed the conversation. Very insightful questions. And thank you for inviting me to share my feelings about them. 
Thank you for listening. And if you like what you heard, please spread the word to other people about this podcast and follow me on Instagram at Patrick Hampton 100 or Venmo me at at capital P Patrick dash capital H Hampton dash 17. Until next time. Thank you.